Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 111. Psalm 111, there's no title to this psalm, it's just Psalm 111. But the subject is really the works of our Heavenly Father. Uh, It's a hymn of praise for his work of creation, his hand of providence, his grace. uh, It it dwells on that the Lord knows his people. And that knowledge that the Lord has of us is to be turned into something practical. It is not a psalm that just says that we just leave off over here and say it's a great psalm and, and, and praise, but it is to be put into something practical, and that is a life of piety. A life that now, when we think of, of piety, often we think of, uh, uh, you know, maybe the monastic movement where they, they went off into the desert, or there was a group of German pietists. Um, and, and they really lived a separate life. But there is a life of piety that each of us is called to live within our own lives, within the boundaries of our own vocation, with the boundaries of our own home and our own neighborhood. You don't have to go off away from society to live a pietistic life. You live that life in the midst of everything else that is going on within your world. And that life of piety is a life that puts the Lord first and thinks upon the things of his kingdom before everything else. How shall I make this decision concerning my family? Well, let's see what the word says about that. How shall I make this decision in my business? Yes, I'm called to be profitable, but am I called to be profitable in a way that is according to the character of our Heavenly Father and the life that Scripture calls me to live, or the way that the world thinks? So all these things go on, But Psalm 111 really calls us to this life. And as we'll see in a moment, and and I hate to say this, but Psalm 112 is the practical living out of that, which we're going to look at another day. Uh, Because these two are a matched pair. Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 really should be done together. But uh, my bad, we're not doing them together. Uh, But we'll get there. When we come back to Psalm 112, I'll remind us of what Psalm 111 says. So... As that is an introduction, if you're able, would you stand with me as I read Psalm 111. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with an understanding of who you are, that we might praise you. Fill us with an understanding of how we should praise you, that our words and our hearts might be lifted to you, for you are the one we worship and adore. Send your Holy Spirit, Lord, that our eyes might be open to these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. 
The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. We are called to worship, and we are called to worship, and and the more that we worship, the more we become conformed to God. The more we worship our Heavenly Father, the more we become conformed to Him. Now, that's the positive side. The negative side is the more you worship something, the more conformed you become to that something. Okay. Uh, now, now the good side is if I'm worshiping God and, and according to His Word and, and in the body of Christ, then I'm going to become more more conformed to Him. The bad side is if I'm worshiping, you fill in the blank, anything other than God, you will become more conformed to that other thing. Uh, if you worship stuff, you will become more materialistic. If you worship your children, oh, I raised my children up on this pedestal. You will become like them, but that's not what you want. You want what? Them to become like us. We are to live the example before them so that they might walk in our footsteps. If you worship order, you are likely to become a little bit obsessive about order, okay? That's just the nature of what we worship. And everybody worships something. Okay, let's. Uh, now, I, I think there was a, a book written about that years ago. Everybody worships something, and if you're going to worship God, you be more conformed to God. If you're going to worship anything else, your work, your family, your house, your stuff, your dog, your leisure time, whatever it is, you will be more conformed to that. And when it comes to it, where is it that we really want to be conformed to? Let's turn to Romans chapter 12, just as a reminder to us what we are called to do here. Our lives, our attitudes, our practices take on the characteristics of the thing that we worship. Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable, and perfect. Renewing your mind, where do we renew our mind? Right here. Okay, This is where we renew our mind so that we might understand the will of God, that we might prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Paul is calling on us to live for God, to love God, to obey God, to delight in God's word, to delight in God's will, to delight in God's law, to live out the mercy that has been given to us. All of these things are wrapped up in this, of this call to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that's not that drastic an image within our society today. But understand when Paul wrote this, there were still sacrifices going on. And, and people came from a, a, uh, a, a, the Jews came from a society where sacrifices were a regular part of their lives. And when Paul says a living sacrifice, all they understood were sacrifices that required the spilling of blood and therefore the sacrifice is death. And Paul says he doesn't want your death, he wants your life. And what portion of our lives does the Lord want? I want to give Jesus my heart. What about the rest of you? I don't know, but I gave him my heart. No, that's just not good enough, okay? How much of us does he want? He wants all of us. He wants every part of us. He wants every little thought that we have, every little action. He wants every little word, all of these things to him. So Christian living is focused on, on the grace that we have received and how we understand this grace and how we live out this grace. So he says, in light of God's mercy and grace that he has given to you, live this way. John Calvin, in his uh, big work, The Institutes, has a phrase. It's called double grace, double grace. And he says, God wants us to be acquitted and declared righteous. Okay, so that's one portion of grace. He wants us to be declared righteous, but the other goal is to stand before him perfect. Now, how many of you were perfect this morning? Uh, Yesterday? Uh, Day before? No, okay. When will we be perfect? When we stand before him in heaven, okay? Now, but that does not mean... That I can be all messed up in this world, even though I'm a believer, that I can say, well, I'm going to be perfect then, so I don't have to be perfect now. It's this pattern of growth in the things of Christ, that we grow more and more conformed to the image of our Heavenly Father. Remember, the thing that we worship, we become more conformed to. So our life is to be spent becoming conformed to the image of Christ's Son, not to the image of this world. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, okay? Once we are transformed, then we can work on becoming more and more Christ-like. That is what we are called to do. But you can't become more and more Christ-like if you worship anything other than our Heavenly Father. Now, Paul is saying God has already shown you mercy in Jesus Christ, so in light of that, give yourself as a living sacrifice to him. Love God, obey God, worship God, Love his law. Live out the Christian life because of his mercy that has been given to you. Present your bodies as this sacrifice. All of our bodies. And this can be a problem for many of us. Because we like the warm fuzzy of giving our hearts to Christ. And, but we already said we've got to give everything to Christ. But I don't want to give everything to Christ because then I lose control over certain areas of my life and I can't really live the way that I want to live because 
I think if, I, if Christ has my heart, then I can still take this little area of my life and keep it for myself and do what I want with it. But I just come back to this part later, maybe on Sunday morning, where I've given him my heart. And, and you know, I, I belong to him, uh, except this little part over here that is really mine. And I'm not interested in giving it up. And I bet we all have some portion like that, or maybe we have two or three portions like that, that we keep for ourselves. And we don't think that the Lord is really concerned about those areas because, well, I'm in control of those areas, and I'm doing fine in those areas, and then on Sunday morning I can give him my heart. No, that's not sufficient. He has got to have those as well. If our life is going to be transformed and then conformed to the image of the thing we worship, if we're holding these things back, we're going to be conformed to those rather than our Heavenly Father. Christian worship is not a 60 or 90 or 120 minute endeavor. It is 24-7. It is a life that is lived to the glory and the praise of our Heavenly Father. And that's what this psalm calls us to. That's what really Romans 12, 1 and 2 calls us to. It involves all of our activities. It involves all of our thoughts. It involves our entire life in the worship of our Heavenly Father. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world. And you say, well, Randy, I'm not conformed to this world. Mostly. Well, how do you think? Do you think, in a, as I said, in a pietistic fashion, where you think about what the Lord wants first? Or do you think about how the world sees something first? And then you think, well, that's a good idea or a bad idea. Do we look at what God says? We say, Randy, I'm not conformed to this world. And it doesn't mean that, well, the world has um, uh, three cars and two kids and we get everything that we want. So I'm not going to be conformed to the world, so I'm not going to have three cars and two kids and everything I want. I'm only going to have two cars and two kids and most of what I want. Now, you're still conformed to the world because you're being defined by what the world says. See, it's... It's not a negative thing. I'm not going to do what the world says. It's a positive thing. I'm going to do what Scripture says. How does Scripture and our Heavenly Father want me to live? How is my life to be ordered? And it really doesn't matter what the world says is right, what the world says is wrong, or keep up with the Joneses. It matters to keep up with the Lord and what he lays before us. And if he says your life should be patterned in this fashion, then that's the way it has to be. Whether... The world thinks we're crazy, or the world thinks we're offbeat. This is the way that we should live. Okay? So don't be conformed to this world. Don't give in to the mores of society. Don't let them shape and form you. Shaped, be shaped by the world. Not just in your actions, but in the, be shaped by the Lord. Not just in your actions, but in the way that you think as well. Our mindset has to be that of the Christian mindset. We have to ask the question, what does God want? That's the first question, not what does the world tolerate, what can I do within the world, but what does God want me to do? Once I have decided that, the answer is easy. Once I have looked in his word and said, well, this is the way the Lord wants me to live, it pretty much answers it. Why do we do this? So that we might prove what the will of God is. What is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. Paul knows that minds that have been transformed by the renewing of God's word 
by the focusing there of God's will, by the work of the Holy Spirit, are able to discern what they should do. And you say, well, I don't know what the Lord wants. Have you read? Have you studied? Have you pursued it? Okay, the answers are here. It it doesn't say whether you should have one car or two in here. But it does talk about what the desires of your heart should be, where your priorities should be. And those things are left to the way that the Lord works in your life and how he wants you to structure your life. So, I guess all that to say, that we took a little excursus over to Romans 12, all that to say, the more you worship the Lord, that's a 24-hour-a-day job, the more you will be conformed, the more you will understand what is good and acceptable and his perfect will is. So, let's go back to Psalm 111. Now remember, Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry in our language. English poetry often rhymes. Okay? Uh, uh, the only poem I can think of, Ring Around the Rosy, Pocket Full of Posies. Okay? And that deals with the plague, doesn't it? Isn't that where that one comes from? Uh, this wasn't a good example, but that's the only one I can think of that rhymes right now. Uh, roses are red, violets are blue. Sugar is sweet, and so are you. That's nice. Okay? Uh, Hebrew poetry does not rhyme. Okay? It has its own vehicle for determining that it is poetry. Often we'll have, remember, we talked about this in the introduction, often you'll have parallelism, where Hebrew poetry will say, in the first line it will say one thing, and then in the second line it will say the same thing in a different way. Or often it is translated the same way. Okay, that's one mark of Hebrew poetry. Another mark of Hebrew poetry is acrostics. And acrostics are, um, you know, a, a letter starts every uh, new section. And, and like uh, the Mother's Day thing, M is for mother or whatever. I, yeah, I won't sing that for you. But you have that acrostic that deals with mother. Here you have this acrostic that goes through the Hebrew alphabet. Now, I know you're wondering... Well, Rand, why don't you give us the Hebrew alphabet? No, you're not getting that. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Delph, that's four letters, okay? But understand, once you begin verse 2, you have all of the Hebrew alphabet there as the first letter for each word in the Hebrew, and that is one of the marks of Hebrew poetry, okay? So it begins with praise the Lord, and it ends with what? His praise endures forever, Praise the Lord. Now, he, this, remember, this psalm reveals for us what, I, what we talked about earlier, the biblical piety, piety. And it's not a biblical piety that is pie in the sky that you can't ever obtain. It is something very real and very concrete. And it is not like the piety of the Pharisees in the New Testament. Jesus called them what? He said, you're nothing but whitewashed tombs. Okay? You look good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of death and you're rotten and that's not biblical piety biblical piety flows from the inside it flows from the change that has taken place in your life by God's grace and then it comes out in your actions and in your words okay so that's what this is really about so the psalm not only tells us to praise God but it shows us how to praise God okay not only tells us that we are to praise him, it shows us how to praise God. 
The author says, basically, I'm going to do it for you, so right along with you, so that we're all involved in this activity. And it reminds us that when we gather to worship, the most important thing is what? It is our object of worship. It is our object of worship. Now, we're going to have a brief English lesson for all of you English files or English teachers or people who love the use of correct grammar. Thank you. I blanked on that. (laughs) Worship. (laughs) Worship is a transitive verb. A transitive verb. Now, most of us, because I'd looked this up, I didn't know this, but most of us are going, well, that's great. But a transitive verb demands a what? Not just, not just an object, but a direct object. It demands a direct object. So we have come to worship. Okay, we're hanging there. Right? You don't just come to worship. Okay, you just don't come to praise. You have to praise something. You have to worship something as the direct object. We have come to worship God. Okay, if you come just to worship, you'll walk out empty. If you come to worship God, if you come to worship our Heavenly Father, if you come to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that is when your life is transformed. That is when you become more and more conformed to the things of our Heavenly Father. D.A. Carson, who's a decent theologian, says this, Should we not remind ourselves that worship is a transitive verb, a verb that requires a direct object? We do not meet to worship, that is to experience worship, we meet to worship God. Worship the Lord God and serve him only. There is the heart of the matter. In this area, one must not confuse what is central with the byproducts. If you seek peace, you will not find it. If you seek Christ, you will find peace. If you seek joy, you will not find it. If you seek Christ, you will find joy. If you seek holiness... You will not find it. If you seek Christ, you will find holiness. If you seek experiences of worship, you will not find them. If you worship the living God, you will have experiences like none other. It's all about what you come and seek. If you seek Christ, all these other things are added unto you. If you seek an experience, if you seek joy, if you seek peace, you won't find them. Your life has to be transformed by Christ first, if you seek Christ. Worship is a transitive verb. The most important thing is the object of that verb, our Heavenly Father. So the call in verse 1 is to praise the Lord. How are we to praise the Lord? With my whole heart, in the company of the upright and in the congregation. The guy who's leading this says, I'm not going to tell you how to worship. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to show you what we need to do as far as worship and it has to be with our whole hearts with all that we are in the congregation he's not saying that you can go off in your own little world in your own little corner and have a worship experience of God it's not the same to stay home on Sunday morning and to watch somebody on TV or just do it now if you're sick or if you can't get out that's different 
there's an experience of the whole body in the congregation, the whole council. There's an experience of being together to worship our Heavenly Father. It is not the same driving down the road with the Christian music on singing. That, that's not the same type that we get here. It is here in the midst of the body of Christ that we come to worship our Heavenly Father. And the psalmist is saying, I have to do it in the midst of everybody. Okay, we all have to be together. How many of us have come to worship and, and we've had a bad day, we've had a bad week, I've just been pressed upon, or I've had a bad year. I've come and I've got these burdens and all of a sudden we start to sing and we start to pray. And, and there you are in the midst of the congregation. And, and, and your spirit is just lifted and, and you've come to seek the Lord and he has come and visited you. And you say, where have you been all week? Where have you been all month? And he is saying to you, where have you been? Why didn't you come to the congregation? Why didn't you come into the council? Why didn't you come into the midst of the body of Christ where you could experience these things? And he says, I'm going to praise you here in the midst of everybody. And the secret of worshiping the Lord is to take delight in him is to take pleasure in the Lord. Now let's think about this for a moment. Excuse me. Here we have our Heavenly Father create everything. I mean, he speaks and it comes into existence. He knows the hairs on our heads. He knows the words before we speak them. And he says, I want you to come in to worship. I want you to come here and I want you to sing of the glories of this created order. I want you to sing of the glories of the work. I want you to talk about my character. I want you to be more and more conformed to, to who I am, that the things of Christ might be demonstrated in your life. It's the family of God coming together before our Heavenly Father. So the secret of worship is to delight in this God who has created us, but yet delights in you delights in you to such a degree that he calls you by name. That he knows every little secret about you. Remember we talked earlier, you got those three or four things over here that you want to keep to yourself? Oh, the Lord knows them. You don't think that he has, he's not paying attention. Don't think that we can hide those things. He knows those already. And he says, bring them to me. Lay them before me. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorites, says this. True saints center their attention on Christ, and his beauty transcends all others. His delight is the source of all other delight. He in himself is the best among 10,000 and altogether lovely. These saints delight in the way of salvation through Christ because it demonstrates God's perfection and wonder. They enjoy holiness, wholeness, while they take no pleasure in sin. God's love is as sweet a taste in their mouths, regardless of whether their own interests are met or not. They rejoice over all that Christ has done for them, and they delight merely because God is God. And then this delight spills over into all of God's other works. In other words, he's focusing our worship on delighting in the God above, the God God who is our object of worship. We should take this great delight in. It is Christ in his rightful place. It is understanding our Heavenly Father and his power and authority and righteousness, but also his intimate knowledge of us. What did you just think 10 seconds ago? Your neighbor doesn't know, but God knows. 
Not only does he know about what I thought, he knows about what everybody else thought. Everybody else in this entire world he knows. There's nothing that we can keep from him. And he says, come to me. Don't think I don't understand you. Don't think I don't know you intimately. Come to me that you may find all the things that you seek. Let's keep going in in the psalm here. Praise the Lord, I will give thanks with all my heart in the company of the upright in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. So one of the keys to to piety, one of the keys to living the Christian life, really is treasuring up, and remembering what the Lord has done. Now, the psalmist is talking here, really, in in 2, 3, and 4, about the general characteristics of the Lord, and then he gets into some specifics in the next couple verses, which we'll see. But these are things we need to remember. We need to remember that the Lord is always attentive to us. And when we get in the desert, when we get out there and we think, oh, man, I I just don't know where the Lord is. I haven't heard from him. I just don't feel close to him. He's not the one who has departed. We are the one who has departed. We are the one who has stopped reading or stopped praying or stopped worshiping. We are the one who has something in our heart that is, we know it's offensive to the Lord, but we're going to keep it there anyway. Uh, And we have distanced ourselves from him. He is never the one who leaves us. He is always there to care for us. Okay, And then we can see his works. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Okay, Then we get into verses 5 through 8. And these remember specific events and then are applied into the future. Okay, They are remembrances of God's work. Verse 5, he gives food to those who fear him. When did the Lord give food? Manna from heaven. Okay? The people who were reading this would have understood that that application. He will remember his covenant forever. He makes an everlasting covenant with his people. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The heritage of the nations is another way of saying the promised land. Those lands belong to somebody else, but the Lord said those are yours, and I'm going to give those to you. So we find that we are to praise the Lord for all of these things that he has given. And then we find a carryover in the New Testament. We pray this every Sunday. Give us this day our daily bread. What about tomorrow? We'll trust the Lord tomorrow for it. Where does that come from? The Old Testament, the manna. They were to gather how much? Only enough for one day except on the day before the Sabbath, then they were gathered two days' worth, so they wouldn't gather on the Sabbath. See, it, it, it's a carryover here. We all, that's Matthew 6. In Hebrews 7, we see Jesus becomes the guarantor, the guarantor of the better covenant, the new covenant, okay? the fulfillment. He's the mediator of the new covenant. The law is a permanent possession of God's people. All of these things which are hinted at here in this psalm, talked about in the Old Testament, come to the fulfillment of the New Testament, okay? And then verse 9. This, perhaps more than anything else, 
is the reason to praise our Heavenly Father. He has sent redemption to his people. Redemption to his people. Now, redemption is a business term in particular. It's not a theological term. It's a, it's a theological term that we have sort of taken off. Uh, turn over to Hosea. Hosea comes right after Daniel. Right before Joel. To redeem something is a business term. It, re- it means to, in a sense, redeem it out of the marketplace. So it's not to be sold again. So you go to the marketplace and you buy uh, a bunch of bananas. And you have redeemed the bananas from the marketplace. You take them home and you consume them. It's not, it's not the same word as I'm buying it wholesale to sell it again retail. You are buying it so it will never be sold again. So naturally, out of the Old Testament, part of the, probably the best illustration of this comes from the life of Hosea okay, and his wife Gomer and all the struggles that they had in this relationship really illustrated the relationship of God's people and our Heavenly Father. And how they were unfaithful, but yet he was faithful. He has redeemed them. Turn to chapter 3 of Hosea. Chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. That's such a great phrase. Other gods and raisin cakes. I mean, how pitiful must they have been uh, to turn away from the only creator to these little piddly things. So he says, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. I bought her. I redeemed her. Her. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall have a man, so I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without an effort or household idols, on and on and on, and Israel will return and seek the Lord. As an illustration of what Israel is to do to, her, to the Heavenly Father, Hosea goes and redeems, buys out of the market, not to be resold, his unfaithful wife. We also see this in Romans 8. You have been set free in Christ. You have been redeemed, not for resale, never to be bought again. Once Christ lays a hold of us, you are redeemed for all times. So back to Psalm 111. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant for how long? Forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Now, I'll only touch on this last verse because that's next week. It's a whole verse for next week. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We walk around and we go, oh, how can I be so stupid? Maybe the first question is, well, maybe you don't fear the Lord, man. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Of wisdom, we see this in Proverbs. We see this uh, so. We, don't, we usually associate this kind of stuff with the Old Testament. This is rampant in the New Testament as well. 
that we are called to fear the Lord. It doesn't mean just to shake in his presence, but it is a holy and awesome fear of who he is. It is a respect. It goes beyond the word uh, that we might associate with a fright movie. It goes to really an understanding of who the Lord is in our place before him. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you call us to praise you. Praise you because of who you are and what you have done. Your deeds, your promises, your covenant, your love, your redemption to us. You call us to worship you, to conform our lives to you, that you may be the object of our desires, of our affections, of all that we are, that you alone may have preeminence in our lives, that we might come to the body and worship you, that we might be more and more conformed to the image of your Son, that the things of Christ would flow from us as we draw close to you. Lord, these are all the things that you call us to. We have to act on them. We cannot just say, well, those are good ideas. But we must have hearts that are ready to worship you. We must be prepared to worship. And we must understand that it is all of our lives that you want all the time. We can hold nothing back. Lord, your grace has always been sufficient and it always will be sufficient. All that you demand of us is all that we have. But you offer so much more. So, Heavenly Father, as we come to worship you this day, we pray that each day might be a day that is devoted to you, that each moment of our lives, no matter what we do, that you would hold preeminence in all our thoughts, in our actions, our attitudes, in our decisions. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.